I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to UpZoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of UpZoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and today I have two wonderful guests joining me, including our regular co-host Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. We also have our friend Joe Minicosi, who leads Urban 3 an economic consulting firm out of Asheville, North Carolina. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Thanks, Abby. Thanks for having me. Hey, Chuck. Hey, it's nice to be here, all three of us. This is kind of exciting. It is kind of exciting. So what's even more exciting is that we are going to be talking about an article written by our co-host, Chuck Marone, and published in Strong Towns. So this article is entitled, The Local Case for Reparations. The article covers Kansas City's long history of top-down government policies and actions after World War II that resulted in racially segregated communities. Racially targeted policies, including redlining, race-restricted covenants, urban highway building, were widely practiced in Kansas City, resulting in decades of disinvestment in predominantly Black communities by dismantling wealth-building opportunities. This was all while predominantly white Americans became more widely able to build wealth through home ownership. While certainly many black individuals have persevered and overcome these barriers, most communities impacted by these practices have never recovered and residents within them continue to lack investment and opportunities to this day. This is obviously not unique to Kansas City, though we make a clear case study when thinking about what steps should be taken today to reconcile decades of unjust policies. Chuck's article takes a historical and data-driven look at Kansas City, specifically using an analysis developed by Joe and his team at Urban 3, and provides some compelling ideas around how our city and cities like us can start to take a local approach towards reparations. So to start off, Joe, can you talk a little bit about your economic analysis of Kansas City and what you found in terms of long-term impacts of redlining? Yeah, thanks, Abby. The study was uh, was funded by the the Kauffman Foundation, which is a local area foundation. Actually, they they do more than outside of Kansas City uh, investment. They they fund entrepreneurial investment uh, well outside of Kansas City and across the country, but. In their hometown, they helped finance this study to basically get to the economics of what's going on in Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri, uh, the metro area. So that's where we started. And as we were doing the analysis and a typical visualization of revenue streams on the Missouri side, y'all choose a, um, you also have an income-based local tax system. So where's the money coming from and how is it being produced and what's the potency? That's our typical stuff. But they asked us to take a look at redlining as well and to see if there'd be a pattern. You know, it's hard to talk about this on a, on a radio without a visual, but, but the visuals are, are on the article that Chuck wrote. And it shows that pattern that every step down the redlining ladder, it's like taking a haircut in value. And for anybody that doesn't know redlining, it was a policy that was in, in place in 19, started in 1934 and went to about 1968, where they changed the way that our mortgage system worked to go from like a seven-year mortgage to a 30-year mortgage, but then they issued this edict at a federal level that will protect those mortgages so long as you map what's good investment and bad investment. 
the bad investment or hazardous is known as the red areas or the red, that's hence the term redlining. And in those color quadrants, one of the things that everybody mapped, and this is the language they used in their analysis, the Negro population, but it wasn't just for black folks that were being redlined. Um, oftentimes it was used for as a class device. So actually in Kansas City on the Missouri side, it was predominantly African-American, but in the Northeast neighborhood in the community, there was the Italians that were redlined, which is, you know, it's my genetic material. And it was kind of interesting to see that it was, there was actually, there's a good Italian section that didn't get redlined and there was the bad Italians that were probably just the recent immigrants. You know, we see this in, in, in Manchester, French people got hit, but every city was required to map your Negro population. There was no way around that. So in cities that have a high black population, that's what you see. The analysis showed a, a cutting of value by about half to go from yellow areas to red areas. Think of it this way. You're getting half the revenue to your community out of that. But I'll stop there before I nerd out too much. I, I hopefully that covers the broader concept. The idea of reparations is an interesting one, and it's one that sometimes comes off as controversial. And I think that the reason is because people are not necessarily confident that a nuanced approach would be taken and that it would be an approach that essentially just throws money towards something without actually understanding the conditions needed to fully improve the situations that we have been left with. Chuck, can you talk a little bit about how you've approached the subject of reparations in some ways? Communities might be able to approach reparations in a more nuanced way that is taking proactive steps towards justice. It was one of these things where I, I wanted to use the word. I wanted to use the word reparations. And I, I did intentionally because this goes back a little bit to the last conversation we had about forest fires. There's this sense at the very local level that there's something wrong and it needs to be corrected. In the case of the forest fire thing, we, we have these bad forest management practices. In the case of reparations, there are these long-standing differences that have been created in terms of trajectory and life outcomes, inequities. We sit around at the local level, and I'm from Minnesota. Minneapolis is our biggest city. Minneapolis has been a flashpoint in 2020. I'm familiar to a large extent with the politicians in Minneapolis and, and their stated intentions and goals and the activists. And you have a whole city here of people who you know, say, we want to do good. We believe that redlining was wrong. We believe those inequities continue today. And we want to deal with this. We, we want to deal with this. But the response is always, the federal government should take care of this. You know, the federal government should do reparations. I support the federal government solving this problem. What I wanted to do is I wanted to reframe that. Because not only on this issue, but I think on a ton of issues, we have a lot that we can do at the local level. We, we can put our actual good intentions to work in our place if we're willing to, to do things. And so I wanted to take on the idea of if we were serious in our hearts about doing this and we wanted to use the tools that we had available to us, what would this look like? That was kind of the basis of the article was to get people to actually take ownership. And hopefully it will you know, take ownership of, of dealing with this issue uh, and addressing you know, these inequities, but also you know, going further than that. 
Yeah, I think from a productivity lens, we can see how redlining in conjunction with suburbanization that has continued to this day has contributed to the fragility of Kansas City's tax base. Kansas City has made very unproductive use of its resources and its infrastructure that we've built citywide. We have around the same population count that we had in 1950 with four times as much area to take care of. We aren't building a ton of wealth as a tax base, yet we are continuing to spread out the investments that we make. One approach to balancing the books is to make better use of existing infrastructure. Rather than building new subdivisions, new shopping centers, and spreading everything out, we ought to be encouraging existing neighborhoods to be reinvested in. And this seems like a logical approach from a purely financial perspective. Yet we know that there are deeper connotations with reinvesting in neighborhoods that were formerly redlined. We know that people in those neighborhoods, family in those neighborhoods, had their wealth intentionally dismantled through that practice. And if the community that is currently living there does not benefit from reinvestment, then we can only expect divisions to be driven deeper. So I actually want to get thoughts from both of you about how do you reconcile this issue? You know, Chuck, you talk in your article about how reinvestment in formerly redline neighborhoods can be directed in a way that creates financial reparations by ensuring people in the community have ownership and build wealth. Joe, you have a background in real estate through your work in downtown Asheville, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on how local governments can kind of direct the market in this way, in in a way that is intended to help people build wealth and build ownership in their communities. I, you know, I deliberately used the uh, the Italian example when we started this conversation because this is a complex and hairy kind of topic to to talk about. There's a lot of guilt in this because we know it happened and uh, you know reaction i get from a lot of people and even me when i you know when i first heard about redlining i was like my family weren't even on in the country well apparently we were you know we were here in 1968 my culture was was hit by redlining uh, in syracuse new york near my my community it did happen to us but i can also check the box white when i sign a form and i can pass as a caucasian an African American or a Black person can't do that, and to this day, uh, we have those those separations, and that was baked into the financial system. Chuck has a brilliant quote in his article about this is like being you know certain people being handed face cards and others other people's being handed twos and threes. Uh, in a poker <laughs> Let me game. read it because I actually I actually like that line too. Um, <laughs> As I say, I say in the article, the, the difference between the redlined neighborhoods and the not redlined neighborhoods, I said the difference in margin of error is perhaps the most pernicious aspect of it. The people in one neighborhood are dealt face cards and aces. Those in the other neighborhood get dealt twos and threes. It doesn't matter how good you are at poker. It's hard to mess up a winning hand, just like it's hard to play your way to success when the deck is stacked against you. And I live around a lot of people who, when they the discussion of reparations comes up, they say, well... Why should we do this? You know, I work hard. I go about my life. I I follow the rules. I do everything. I think that that's true, and we should respect people for that. And I, I honor that. And and I, I I think that you know, yes, that you know, that makes you a very good citizen. And thank you for that. I think when we don't acknowledge that some you know some neighborhoods, the people living there, were dealt face cards and aces, and it's hard to mess up a winning hand and poker, you know, and other neighborhoods were dealt twos and threes. Uh, it's hard to win that way. 
that's really what we're talking about here is, you know, everyone, sure, works hard. Everyone cares for their family. Everyone goes about their business in, in a decent, prudent way. But the deck is stacked. And I, I think, you know, the question of, of are we going to address that in some way is, yeah, one we're struggling with, but I think it's a fundamentally important one, particularly when you get to the city level. And it's the city level where we have to have the humility to say we we can solve these problems. Uh, it is kind of anachronistic to say, well, the Fed screwed it up. Let's let's go back to them to solve the problem. It's like, uh, what's the definition of insanity? Um, <laughs> anyway, but so one of the, one of the things that the the Kaufman Foundation allowed us to do was to drill into one neighborhood, and it's a neighborhood over in Kansas City, Kansas, that runs along Quindaro Boulevard, and I was unaware of the history of the of that part of Kansas City, Kansas, when we started doing the analysis. And it's kind of mind blowing that this is where John Brown's dad set up a, a settlement is one of the, basically for the Underground Railroad in Kansas. And it had the first black university west of the Mississippi. Now that area got redlined. And here we are looking at it almost a century later. You're looking at 732 lots that are vacant. Now, if we follow strong towns and we're like, okay, there's a road and a street and a pipe and there's all that infrastructure in front of that property, but it's paying very little taxes and just running the numbers on it, it was about $30 million lost over 82 years. So you're looking at, but just by following these policies, the community essentially wrote a check for $30 million and just trashed it. That's the cost to the community and lost taxes from those properties. And it's not going to go away just by you know, hiding from it. They're, they still have to pay for those those lots. We did an analysis in, in South Bend, Indiana. They basically effectively write a check for $2.5 million in lost taxes for all their vacant parcels, which is about $500 of subsidy to a vacant parcel. So go ahead and multiply that times 732. That's what you're spending to service those lots. You still have to have a pipe there. You still have to have a street there. So they do have to turn it around. Now, in all of these things, you have to have a, a place to start. So to at least stop the bleeding, it would only take 18 houses. That's something you can do locally. That's something you can do with your community. 18 houses is not hard to help finance or support or find some local uh, person, even maybe within the neighborhood to start a business building houses. But we had to give them some way to feel what that consequence of not acting is. And the consequence of not acting is you've already spent $30 million dollars that you'll never get back. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, well, and then you have the the perspective of, yes, that the areas that have all of these vacant lots really ought to be reinvested in because it's hugely unproductive from a tax perspective. But there's also the kind of competing argument around what happens if all of a sudden that means that taxes go up for the people who are living there currently. And that seems to be the rub against that argument. So have you had thoughts about how do you, do you use tax abatement? Are there other ways of kind of dealing with, you know, displacement concerns? Sure. I mean, it's, that's the thing. The tax system is just policy, right? So we can, we could adopt a policy that anybody that's, you know, a longtime resident, we can even make it income-based. I mean, and say, say like, you know, if you're of low wealth, we're just going to go ahead and just freeze your taxes. 
they do this in lots of cities or abatements. Actually, Kansas City, Kansas, or uh, both sides, y'all practice abatements, just earmark it for the neighborhood. You know, in Florida, they have a an exemption for spouses of civil servants who were killed in the line of duty. It's like, you can do that. Like they don't define what the civil servant is. So I guess if somebody dies in the planning department, their spouse gets a, <laughs> gets a tax deduction and it just, that's a joke, but, um, it's a dangerous nope. job. <laughs> it is a paper cut, you know, a filing cabinet could fall on somebody, but you know, this is the thing. These are all policies and, and you have to identify that some policies are hurting you right now. And you either have to stop doing those policies or you have to find some way to fix it. But to just, just, just hold your knees to your chest and crawl into your desk and, and just say the world is too complicated is not going to solve the problem. <laughs> a lot of Joe's work in Kansas City, part of it has demonstrated how prolificate, and I'm going to use this word and, and you guys can feel free to push back on this, but just irresponsible the city has been, the community has been on using tax increment financing. There's example after example after example of basically the city chasing the big project and handing out what, what are ridiculous amounts of tax subsidies in order to facilitate these things that even after they're built are oftentimes less productive than what was replaced. It occurred to me, I think this gets a little bit to the, the displacement issue. It occurred to me that the problem we have in, in a place like Kansas City is that the city is very comfortable working at a big scale. We will work with big developers. We will work with big projects. We will do big TIFFs. And they're comfortable working on that scale because there's a certain amount of efficiency. I think in a very cynical way, it, there's a comfort level with it. We can show progress. Those people often come in with sophisticated attorneys and, and, and people making applications on their behalf. They know what to ask for. They know how to ask it. It seemed to me like if, if we want to align our actions with our intention, so if, if, if we want to actually, you know, align what we do with the compassion that we claim to have, all we really need to do is take those same tools that we are so willing to hand out to, to, to people and, and just recalibrate them so that they work at the block level. We can help people get into homes. We can help them get a home built. We can help them make a down payment. We can help them receive the wealth of that and not be displaced using the same exact tools we use for the big, huge corporate developer, but we just have to do it at a smaller scale. I think it's important to note too, we actually want the people living in these distressed neighborhoods, we want them paying taxes. We want them paying a lot of taxes, but we want them paying a lot of taxes, not because we're trying to extract revenue from them, you know, in like a Ferguson, Missouri kind of model where, you know, how do we take poor people and get the last remaining wealth out of them we can? We want them paying a lot of taxes because we want them building wealth. We want them to actually receive, just like it happened in the, you know, the green neighborhoods and the blue neighborhoods back with the redlining map. We want them to receive that capital and to have that capital actually result in them building their own equity, building their own wealth, creating their own empowerment, and becoming basically equal, full citizens along with all the rest of us who have benefited from those types of programs. When I watched Joe present this uh, last year, uh, it was about a year ago now, about last October, and you went through, Joe, the example after example of, is this a good TIFF or a bad TIFF? Is this a good TIFF or a bad TIFF? And I actually thought you were a little bit 
too generous because your definition of a good tiff is, <laughs> you know, this one's obviously bad because we don't even come anywhere close to recouping <laughs> what we gave them in terms of wealth. But the good ones actually, I think from a tax standpoint, didn't work out either, but they were at least not as insane as the other ones. If we do this reparations program, we're, we're actually working at the block level, these things actually pay off. Like the city grows wealthier too, along with its people. Well, and I think Kansas City has gotten really used to kind of the big project approach to trying to dig us out of the hole that we're in. And it's not really an incremental approach in a way that actually benefits the people who are living in Kansas City. And if we were to try to kind of layer some of the programs that we currently have, I think that we could start to get to where we need to go. You know, we have a tax abatement program, as Joe mentioned, and that tax abatement program applies to many neighborhoods that were formerly redlined. And with a $5,000 exterior improvement, you then can apply for 10-year tax abatement. I've always wondered, why don't we be more proactive about potentially giving people grant money for these types of improvements and proactively going out and giving them tax abatement and helping them to capture equity in their property, maybe drive momentum towards other types of investment in neighborhoods. If displacement is the concern over, over taxes, it seems that we just need to be changing the policies and we just need to be proactive about it. And like Joe said, not be hiding under our desk because it's too complicated. Well, there, there's a couple of things. One of the things is you got to make it easy for people. Because I've seen plenty of policies where they're like, well, we have an exemption policy and then I'll, I'll go and look at it. And, and I'm, not, I'm not an idiot, but I can't make my way through it. And I'm like, how is my mom who has a high school education, how is she going to figure this stuff out? You know, so it's just by having a policy doesn't make it equitous. You know, it's, it's how do you frame that policy and how do you get people, get that information into people's hands? Back to South Bend for a second. One of the things that they're doing is they're going to just going to develop pre-approved sets of plans that like we're, we're going to facilitate you to get into that house, get the house built and get it on a lot as easy as possible. So not only that, here's a pattern book of, of buildings that we're not even going to bother reviewing because we already did. That saves time and money and brain damage for an individual. You don't have to go hire an architect. And I'm, I'm trained as an architect. I'm not saying that to bash architects. It's just that if, if the problem is such a large scale, you need to move fast and get and, and start to change things and worry about, you know, are architects fairly compensated later? You know, like this is a huge community problem and we need to build wealth back into the citizens that had the wealth extracted from them. The other thing is, um, you know, back to the TIF, you know, part of the reason why I was doing that as an example Chuck was that they weren't even doing that simple of, of, right. of an analysis. It was like, <laughs> yeah, it was like, you know, if, if, if you're predicting the weather for 50 years, you might want to go back and see if you ever got the weather predictions, right. You know, right. So if, you're, if you're predicting the growth of these tax projects, why don't you take a look every once in a while? And for something like there's the, the, I think it's what the Phillips hotel, there's this massive old hotel in downtown. It's like 30 stories tall. Um, it got a tiff. Well, in that one, I would argue that seems fair. I mean, this, this building's almost 100 years old. It's more than contribute its fair share. Josh McCarty, I, lo I love this. His favorite comment is we should give birthday presents to old buildings, and that birthday present should be a little tax abatement for a couple of years. 
because they've been contributing for a hundred years. It's like, let's cut them a break every once in a while. When you have a tax system based on value, there's a perverse incentive to build crap. So the Walmarts happen because there's a tax break that's baked into the policy. We have TIFs all over the place baked into the policy if we just choose to put on those sunglasses to see them. So if you tax me less for a cheap building, that's a TIF. You know, we don't call it a TIF, but it is, you know, why would you tax me less? So the whole tax system has these kind of overt or inadvertent TIFs baked into them. The, the actual TIF that we know about or talk about are just contracts that, that negotiate taxes. That's the way I see them. But, you know, in, in, on the Missouri side, you tax residential at 17% and commercial at 32%. So you're taxing commercial twice what you're taxing residential. That's a TIF. Residential gets to pay half the taxes that commercial properties do. That's just a, a uniform applied TIF across the city. You know, that's kind of like the way I see it. It's just, let's, let's put the terminology aside and just see, do we even know the math of what's going on? Right. The point you made, you made this in the presentation too, is that the city fairly is indiscriminately doing these things. If they like the project, if the project sounds good, they're approving the TIF. Uh, it's almost, you know, just purely a political decision as opposed to one based on math, based on return on investment, based on any calculation. And then no one goes back later to check, right? Yeah, you, no, you hit the nail on the head right there. There's, uh, Josh actually made a, a, I call it the passing of the pig through the python. It's like all of the different TIFs stacked up over time. And when do they, because they eventually retire, they expire at a certain point. And you can, you can see in the chart, and I talked with Daniel about, about this yesterday, that chart, you can see them stack up every four years, uh, almost like it's, it's like right there in the graphic that you can see the majority of TIFs happen in these lumps that run on four-year cycles. That would be politically now, wouldn't it? You know, so yeah. it's what happens every four years. <laughs> so it's like, right, right. there's the data. Um, but again, it's, if we're not asking questions and we're not interrogating, this isn't to say that, okay, that's a bad thing. It's just, it's coincidental. But are these good or bad? And let's just hold ourselves accountable to that in the process. The saddest part of this is that if you, if you did actually do the math, what you would find is that the only thing that comes close to paying off, the only thing that actually has a real project with a real payout is when you get into this fine-grained stuff. When you go out and you take a neighborhood where you already have infrastructure and you can help people get into homes, even if they're modest homes, in existing vacant lots, it, it has a huge payback. And that payback will continue on and on and on, in, you know, long into the future. Joe gave a number of around $30 million of, you know, the, the check that they wrote, the lost revenue. That, that's a high price to pay uh, for inaction. It, it's a high price to pay for a racist set of policies. It's a very high price to pay for what, what I'm just going to call, you know, kind of passive condescension. A, a little bit of the feedback that we've gotten. I got a, a ton of emails the day that that article was released. I would say they run about 50-50. 50 50% of the people seem to not even bother to read it and just were mad at the term reparations. And they had lots of things to say that are very stereotypical of what you would expect. I work hard. Why should other people get handouts? This kind of thing. And the other 50% actually wanted to, to deal with the ideas. I think on the first, first 50%, the idea that let's take all ideas of race and reparations and everything just out of it 
and let's just you know look at this afresh. The idea that we would allow neighborhoods to linger and underperform when our neighbors who live there are willing to do the work to bring them back. And all they need is, in a sense, the tools that we have used in other parts of the city to be allocated to them in a way that they can utilize. What type of people are we who would not do that? That is just hurting ourselves, even if we are completely selfish and care nothing about them or their neighborhood or the idea of reparations or any of this. That's just spiteful to ourselves. So I think we are compassionate people. I think we do have you know, something to do here. And I think a lot of people in Kansas City, certainly a lot of people here in Minnesota, have this sense that you know, we would like to do something here to make this, if not, you know, correct this problem. And if not make up for past wrongs, at least put us on a a better path today so we can get closer to dealing with it. There's nothing stopping you. Just go do it. You have tools. You can do this. There's no city in America that can't begin, you know, their own reparations program right now today. Yeah, I'd be more blunt. It's like, let's just go ahead. First, we need to accept the fact that this was a real thing and it was unbelievably cruel to do to humans. That happened. This That was $30 million just in one half mile square neighborhood. We didn't do the whole city. In South Bend, they lost $900 million of value in their community, close to a billion dollars of net worth by basically shooting themselves in the foot. So let's go ahead and accept the fact that that happened and, and realize that that's a fact. And to not have the humility and, and uh, respect to say we can solve this problem, it's not going to go away. So let's just go ahead and start to figure out we need to find a way to solve this going forward. What people see when, when, when they hear the word reparation, they think that like you know Ed McMahon's going to show up with some huge check or something like that. That's not how this is going to roll out. This is going to be a series of small tweaks. The way that I liken it to, not to make this even more uh, complex and political, but the defund the police movement. Defund the police is, is an improper term to use for what probably needs to happen. Does the city of Asheville, my city, does it need to have a damn armored vehicle and full on riot squad gear with like, I, I got know. gas. Have you ever driven one of those, Joe? They're lots of fun. I was yeah, a truck driver in the <laughs> army. My job in the army was a truck driver. And I'm like, yeah, these things are really fun to drive. Yeah. The answer but, is no. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the thing is like a, a $250,000 vehicle that we now have to maintain. I don't care if we got it on a grant. We own that damn thing now. Like, is that the best use of money? Or like in Eugene, Oregon, they have this program called Cahoots where they dedicate some funds to essentially having some therapists going around and helping people that have mental health issues. Now, having been on the board for our downtown association, most of our police calls in the downtown, the majority of them can be handled by basically a bunch of therapists that just go out and talk to some people because we've deinstitutionalized the mentally ill and we have this problem in cities. And unfortunately, the way that we're handling that is by being paying police officers to go out there and deal with that, which is not, it's not good for them. It's not the best use of their skills, and it's super expensive. It's paying for the wrong department. So reparations is the same deal. It's like rather than – this isn't to say the bid Ed McMahon check. It's going to take lots of small little moves and some iteration and some experimentation to try to solve this problem. The same way it will be for the police department. It's like let's get some therapists in to just handle the, the calls for the mentally ill. Done. That's easy. 
I know we're running out of time, Abby. As a last statement for me, it's interesting because in Brainerd, where I live, it was not an African-American neighborhood. It was a Finnish neighborhood. You know, it was Finlanders who were here. And the interesting thing is that that is the neighborhood that still has the deep struggles today. You know what? No one here is going to call it reparations, but we should be out doing this program in that neighborhood because that neighborhood would greatly benefit from it. The people there would greatly benefit from it. And the community as a whole would greatly benefit from it. We would actually see our quality of life go up, our taxes go down, and the city be able to provide a higher level, you know, the community have a higher level of service if we did this. And we have, you know, there's no racial component here in our community. I want to reiterate the whole point of this was to say, we don't have to sit and wait for someone else to solve these problems for us. We have things we can do today and and let's just do them. Let's, let's not wait for like the crazy train to solve this for us. We can do this ourselves. Yeah. And based off of the debates the other night, I am not I don't have a lot of hope that we should be waiting for the crazy train to solve our problems. And and just based on this conversation on Kansas City and the the amount of nuance that can go into these discussions, it makes a good case for us trying to approach reparations or whatever we want to call it at the local level, because we ought to be recognizing where we are as a community and tweaking our tools that in a way that works best for us. I feel like we could talk about this for like another hour, but we do have to wrap up this conversation. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which I forgot to warn Joe about. So I'll let Chuck go first. But that's the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been listening to, reading, watching, or just in general, things that have been captivating our attention this week. So Chuck, what have you been up to? I have read every Bob Woodward book. Since I know George W. Bush's presidency, he he's written these successive books about each president, and he gets kind of unprecedented access to the president, the president's inner circle. And he, he writes these books that, you know, go into the decision making. And I found all of them to be a really good check on kind of the media spin and, and, and the craziness. He makes the presidents all seem at one hand, more human and more complex, but then also on the other hand, you know, a little more presidential. It changed my view of every single one of them. I'm reading his latest book now, Rage, about Donald Trump. And I would say it's it's equally good. There is a lot of stuff there. And uh, it is a it is a thoughtful insight on the Trump presidency. And I would highly recommend it to everybody. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Uh, Joe, what about you? I gave myself the trifecta of reading Color of Law, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and then Cast. And I've already harassed Chuck about reading all three. I I would view it as a must, particularly as a white person working in and around city issues. And in this case, this we talked about today. And we do have a caste system. We do have entrenched racist qualities still to this day in all of our policies. And that is a true statement, as well as the the history of redlining and consequential economic policy. Uh, Those books helped me frame it. It helped me understand what I can do to help as a professional. As a flip side, I got through the book uh, Behave uh, by Richard Sapolsky about the, which actually I was doing that to 
let's try something completely different because I'm emotionally a wreck. Um, so, so, um, it's actually a great book on the, on the way our brains behave and the neuropsychology or the, he's a, he's a neurologist. Um, so it's, it's how our brains are wired. It's our genetic makeup. It's cultural. He gets even in a religion and politics in it. It's an, it's a, it's a great book. Um, and I know that I, I prattle on about behaviorism, but a lot of what we're dealing with is actually how our brains are wired. A lot of these conversations we have, a lot of the reactions that people have, to the uncomfortableness of having a conversation and dialogue about uh, the racist tendencies of, or the racist qualities of our tax policy. Um, we need to understand and empathize with the fact that some, it's just a lot of it's the wiring of our brain make it difficult for a lot of people to have these conversations. And that's that's fine, it's a part of a, quality, a human quality. But other than that, I've been uh, having fun with uh, investigating the fun tax policies of Florida. Yeah, that's what I do on my free time as well. <laughs> I'm out bike. Tax policy. I'm out Oh, bike. wow. That's, so that's... you are actually stealing my down zone. Um, you guys are making me look bad because I don't have any new books that I've gotten into this week. Although, Joe, that sounds – the Behave book sounds like a really interesting one that I might have to go get. I actually am just sharing that I'm going back down to Bentonville, Arkansas once again this weekend for mountain biking. I've, I think I've talked about biking a lot on this show, but more recently in the fall, I've just been getting really into mountain biking again. I kind of took a couple of years off because I had torn my ACL and had surgery and that's a whole thing. And so I didn't mountain bike for a couple of years and kind of took that time off and just biked around the city with my mountain bike. And I'm just excited to get back into it. And there's some amazing trails. If you've ever been to Bentonville, Arkansas, it's really incredible what they've done with their city. They have a really cool downtown and the trail system actually connects right into their downtown. So you could be in, in their square and then you could go, sorry, that's the train. They but love the train. Go, I know so many, so many great sounds in this neighborhood. Um, but yeah, they, they have an amazing regional trail system and all of Northwest Arkansas. So if you're into mountain biking and nearby, I highly recommend it. Abby, come on up to Asheville. We've got the I know. Got lots of mountain biking around here. <laughs> I've been really wanting to go to Asheville. I know you guys have a really great bluegrass festival. And so one of these days when when we have festivals again, I'll probably go to Asheville. I'll have to give you a call. Okay. I'm trying to get Abby to move to Brainerd because the house right next door to me is for sale. She seems like she wants to uh, she wants to stay down south, but I'm I'm trying to convince her that she'd be a good fit for our place. It's pretty cold up there. And, oh, that's uh, a rumor. Don't be spreading lies. It's not that cold. It's colder <laughs> in Duluth. <laughs> I, I think Kansas City is kind of cold. So I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to the cold weather. Although I now, now that I'm getting a little bit older, I have really bad allergies this time of year. So I'm kind of anticipating a freeze so that I can stop feeling like I have allergies all the time and being miserable. So it's only cold six or seven months out of the year here. So Ugh, yeah, really yeah, cold. I mean, it's, it's balmy compared to Manitoba. You know, it's there. Yeah. And, and we have, and we have no allergies for like, you know, half the year. It's great. 
Because everything's dead half the year. <laughs> well, isn't that isn't that the Brainerd the Brainerd slogan? Uh, more 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 warm than Manitoba and a little less crazy <laughs> than Des Moines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and everything's dead half the year. Uh-huh. That sounds great. Well, thanks Chuck and Joe for taking the time with me today, and thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thank you. Take care.